want to thank you for inviting me to participate in this service and um, honored to be here today. I've uh, known Mark for several years. First met him at a To Be Told conference and then um, began talking to him and he came out, started coming out to Christ Community Church in Titusville to uh, do some counseling. We had him preach for us and um, I remember some very memorable sermon illustrations that started with, it's kind of like my cat. I've also prayed for several years that God would lead him into pastoral ministry, so I'm very pleased that you all have called him to, uh, to serve here, right in our neighborhood. Margaret and I moved about a year ago, just uh, about half a mile from here, across the lake, and uh, glad to be here. I'm also glad to have him in our presbytery, where pastors greet each other as fathers and brothers. Uh, my wife, Margaret, says I'm old enough to be in the category of fathers, but I prefer to think of myself as one of the brothers, and I do consider Mark a uh, dear brother. And he's also in the, the 1% of PCA pastors, the 1% that can actually sing. <laughs> Mark asked, when, uh, when he asked me to come, he said, could you preach on the next passage in Mark that we'll be in starting in chapter 10 um, so we can stay on schedule for getting through this gospel by Easter and in God's providence, the passage we're looking at this morning actually fits well for an ordination and installation service. So if you have your Bible and wanna follow, it's Mark chapter 10. Um, but as you're turning, before we read it, let me remind you of some of the promises we've just thought about a lot as we've gone through the Advent season. Um, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's no wonder that the common expectation was that Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem and whatever it was that he would have to do to set up his kingdom and restore the kingdom to Jerusalem, it was about to happen. Jesus had explained to his disciples who he was. The turning point in the Gospel of Mark is actually in chapter 8 when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they gave him some answers and then he said, who do you say that I am? And... Um, Peter answered, you are the Christ. Mark tells us immediately after those words, this is chapter eight, verse 31, Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He says it again shortly after that, chapter nine, verse 30, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But it's also very clear as you go through the, the Gospels that the disciples did not understand what that meant. It didn't fit through their filter for the Messiah that he would have to suffer and die. So not until it happened and he actually rose again did they begin to understand all the things that he had said. In our passage this morning, Jesus tells him for the third time that he is going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. Let's read it together. Mark 10, beginning at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John 
the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, for it is, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came up, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out, cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So once again, Jesus announces his coming death. This time he gives specific detail. Some critics of the Bible say that detail is so specific that Mark must have put these words in the lips of Jesus after it all happened. But what Jesus said was exactly what was already told in scripture regarding the Messiah. Isaiah 50, verse six, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Psalm 22, seven, all who see me mock me. You think of Isaiah 53, describing the suffering of the servant. At that time in Israel's history, the Jews could not execute anyone. From 33 years of living in a country occupied by the Romans, Jesus knew how the Romans put people to death. The main reason, though, for repeating these predictions was so his disciples would know after his death and resurrection that it was no accident. He came into the world to die. The suffering of Jesus was not an unexpected turn in events. The cross was at the heart of his mission. For this reason, God sent him into the world to lay down his life for others. And Jesus told him clearly, verse 45, why he would die. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, when do we use the word ransom? It's usually only you think of a kidnapping or something, right? Person sets a demand, I'll give you your child back if you pay this amount of money. Ransom, a ransom is a payment that is made to buy somebody out of slavery or out of bondage. The slavery that requires a ransom is your guilt. The Bible tells us sin deserves punishment from a holy God. Jesus came to deliver you, to ransom you from that punishment by substituting himself in your place. 
The ransom price was his life in place of your life. The debt owed to God by sinners is an infinite debt, and it can only be paid by an infinite being, a sacrifice of infinite value, and only God could offer that sacrifice. So God became man in order to provide this payment. The death of Jesus was not a tragic, unexpected turn of events. For this reason, he came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what comes next seems out of place, but it shows that while his disciples didn't understand what he said about his suffering and death, they did understand that he was the king and that he was establishing his kingdom. So this passage about servant leadership begins with a selfish request, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and, asked, and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Can you imagine telling your children that you've been diagnosed with incurable cancer? You have only a short time to live. And one of your kids says to you, dad, would you do something for me before you die? Would you change the will so that I get more than my brothers or sisters? You know, that would be insensitivity in the extreme. But that's what James and John did. Instead of sympathizing with Jesus as he approached the time of his suffering and death, they thought about themselves and the glory they wanted. You know, what were they thinking? And maybe their thinking went something like this. Uh, we don't know why he keeps talking about suffering and death. We know that's not the Messiah's destiny because the Bible says he will reign on the throne of David from that time forth and forever. So if he's boldly going to Jerusalem, it must be that he's about to do whatever it is to establish his kingdom and retake the throne. And he's going to need a prime minister and a secretary of state. And looking at these other 10 guys, who better than the two of us? Now, according to Luke, I think it was, uh, James and John did have connections in high places. They were related to the man who was the high priest. So maybe they thought it won't hurt to put this idea in his head now. So that if anybody else asks, we can say, no, he already, he already promised that to me. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Remember Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. The imagery comes out of the Old Testament prophets where the cup represents the outpouring of God's wrath or the cup of God's wrath that is drunk to the full and brings destruction. Revelation uses that same language, bowls of wrath that are poured out. You think about this, every time you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord at the Lord's Supper, you proclaim his death until he comes. You drink the cup of God's wrath against sin that requires the death of a sinner. But you don't get wrath because the cup represents the covenant in Christ's blood. Jesus drank the cup for you and you're reminded and the Holy Spirit seals to your heart the truth that he died your death. He drank the cup of wrath for you. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Luke 12, 50, he said, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And he was obviously talking about the cross, about suffering, the hell that he would bear, the punishment for sin that, sin that would fall on him. By using these words, he made it clear that he considered the death he would die a wrath-bearing death in the place of others. It was penal. It paid a penalty. It was substitutionary. It was in the place of others. Judgment for sin would fall on him. 
But why did he call it a baptism? Defining baptism is a bit tricky. Now, I haven't fact-checked this, but I heard it from R.C. Sproul. <laughs> and it made a lot of sense, at least to me. He said there was a fragment of Greek manuscript that was found somewhere. Uh, from, that was a first-century manuscript, and it turned out to be a pickle recipe. And it used both words for baptism that are found in the New Testament, bapto and baptizo. And the recipe goes something like this. Dip, bapto, the cucumber, in boiling water. That's blanching it. And then immerse it, baptizo, the cucumber, in the brine solution. R.C. said, what makes it a baptism is the change that is produced by that second immersion. You can't unpickle a cucumber and return it to its pre-pickle state. It has changed. The baptism has produced a permanent change. And the word baptism speaks more to the change that is produced by something than it does to the act of immersing. Your baptism represents a permanent change. Paul says in Romans 6, you've been baptized into Christ. You died with him. You were buried with him. You rose with him. He goes on to say in that chapter, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? No, don't you know that you died? The old you is gone. You are a new person in union with Christ, and you can't undo that. Baptism, being baptized into Christ, united to Christ, affects a permanent change. And your outward baptism simply represents that. It symbolizes that work of God in your life. This is Paul's point in Romans 6. Jesus had a baptism to undergo, he says, and it would change him forever. Think about that. Until the final hours of his life, Jesus was not the sin bearer. On the cross, all that changed forever. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. That's the heart of the gospel, penal substitutionary atonement. He became the sin bearer. He underwent a baptism. He was so identified with us that he could not go back to what he was before. That identity, that union with God's redeemed people could not be undone. We read earlier, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He will forever be the one who redeemed us by his blood. The scriptures say, for the joy that was set before him, he willingly went to the cross. He gladly went and laid down his life for us. This is what it meant to be the Christ. So he asked, can you drink that cup and endure that baptism? And they answered, sure, no problem. We're able. He talked about clueless. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. The day would come when they would share in his suffering. They would lay down their lives in the cause of the gospel. They would be so identified with him that they would suffer for him. Verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Indignant means what? It's a little more than just irritated. Right? They were angry. They were, were resentful towards James and John. And why would they be indignant? A couple of possibilities. One is they thought, how could they be so insensitive to ask something like this of Jesus at this time? But more than likely, it was, why didn't we think of that first? How did they manage to beat us to, to the punch? Um, it's so easy to condemn in someone else what you excuse in yourself. They had the same desire. They wanted glory. They wanted to share in the glory. They could see pride in the request of James and John, but they could not see the pride that gave rise to their anger. So what's the problem here? Their indignation comes from inside them. It revealed what was in their hearts, 
and Jesus saw the sin behind their anger. And think about it, they desired glory. That longing is not wrong. God made us for glory. God made us to live with him and enjoy him forever. In our hearts, even as fallen sinful people, there is a longing to know that our lives matter. We long for significance, but sin distorts that good longing and twists it into a desire to dominate other people, to feel significant and important in relation to other people. To feel significant, we need to have people recognize our greatness. That's what it means to be proud. A proud person thinks, I want other people to think highly of me. I want the recognition and honor that I deserve. <coughs> pride is the vice, the evil that drives selfish ambition. The opposite of pride is the virtue of humility. Humility is the virtue that nobody seems to want. Someone has said, humility is the least valued virtue in America. Now, humility does not mean having a low opinion of yourself. A humble person is not thinking about himself too much because he's focusing on other people. It's in this context that Jesus explained power and leadership. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. To lord it over means what? Make sure other people know who the master is, right? Um, that's what we want, isn't it? Sadly, that's the way power is exercised often. Being in a position of authority in our culture is often taken for permission to control other people, to lord it over. You say, well, that's not my problem. I'm not a ruler. I'm not some kind of great one. I'm not some kind of person who gets to exercise authority over anyone. Listen, if you don't see yourself in the group of disciples Jesus is addressing here, you'll miss something very significant about the sin in your heart. What he said to them applies to all of us. Think of it, to be human is to use power. It's inescapable. God made you in his image and likeness. He is the God who governs and controls all things. He told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and exercise dominion over it, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. To be human is to exercise rule at some level, to use power in some way, which involves using your mind and strength and will to control situations. You walk into a dark room, there's a light switch. You are, it doesn't take a lot of energy to flip the switch, but if you don't choose to do it, if you don't exercise power over the darkness by flipping the switch, you'll remain in the darkness. So you exercise power. You know, unless you're very passive, you exercise power over creation at some level. You squash mosquitoes and you pull out weeds, right? Um, you exercise power every day in lots of ways, some good, some not so good. The fall of man brought sin into the world and left us all with a sinful nature and it's sin that distorts the way we use power that God has given us. But it hasn't changed the fact that all of us must relate to power in one way or another. Use, you use power in relation to other people, parents in relation to children, a manager in relation to employees or coworkers, a teacher in relation to students, an elder or pastor in relation to people in the church body. And you can think of examples in every one of those contexts of power that's been abused by someone acting like a dictator to force people into compliance or to use people for his own benefit. Jeremiah 23, God says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You know, God entrusted care of Israel to priests and Levites 
and they abuse that position for their own advantage. Tim Keller said, idols of power are not only for the powerful. You can pursue power in small, petty ways by becoming a local neighborhood bully or a low-level bureaucrat who bosses around the few people in his field of authority. Power idolatry is all around us. So you don't have to be a CEO of a big corporation or someone elected to a political office to exercise power or to abuse power. And think about for yourself, what do you do to make sure you get what you want in some relationship? Do you lie? Do you yell? Do you threaten? Do you only tell half the story? Do you exaggerate? Do you punish by the silent treatment? Use physical force or crafty manipulation to get your way? It is built into human nature to reflect the image of God by exercising power in various ways. The shame of fallen human nature is the abuse of power at virtually every level imaginable. Instead of using power God has given us to help make the world a better place, we use power to intimidate, to control, and to get our own way. It's interesting that Jesus exercised power even in the story that follows, verse 46, the story of Bartimaeus. You wonder when we read that, why is this story tucked in to Mark's gospel at this point? Was it just chronological? Well, that's what actually what happened next. So Mark told about it. But Mark did not write a biography of Jesus. He chose certain things to tell us that Jesus is the Christ. He selected certain material. Immediately after the story of this healing is the account of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So what does the story show us between these disciples asking the selfish request, Jesus' instruction about power, and the triumphal entry? And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The clock is ticking toward the final days of his earthly ministry. Um, don't you think he had a lot on his mind? He knew what was coming. He had just told them, verses 33 and 34. He just spoke of the cup that he would drink and the baptism he would undergo. That had to be looming large in his soul and weighing him down. He had just experienced the selfish request of two men who should have known better, men who knew him better than most other people. That had to be a little bit heartbreaking. They were full of pride and self-interest. When you are weighed down with concerns and griefs, when you have a lot on your mind, how willing are you to serve someone else? Jesus had time for a poor blind man. Jesus stopped and said, call him. He wasn't bothered or put out by another need. And look at the respect that he showed to this man. He said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Wasn't it obvious the man was blind? He was begging for the son of David to have mercy on him. But Jesus, knowing the man's need, still waited to be asked. He honored this man by showing respect. Here is the son of David, the Messiah, the Lord of creation, who is not focused on himself or his situation or his needs, even in a time when you think he would be. You see the humility of Jesus here. He demonstrated what he had just told his disciples. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The specific sin that distorts power is pride. Peter Kreeft said this, pride is not pleasure in being praised, wanting to please others like parents, friends, or God. That too shows humility. The exemplars of pride are not movie stars, but dictators. Movie stars are vain, dictators are proud. Pride is essentially a lust for power, and this is far more widespread than dictators. It goes deeper even than the lust for pleasure, for we are willing to endure pains if only we are in control in power. Again, you don't have to be in control of your own little country to be a dictator. You can be a dictator as a teacher in a classroom, as a parent in your home, as a husband or a wife, 
or even as a pastor. A dictator says, my will be done. I will have things done my way. I'm in control. I'm right. Everyone needs to know that. What you see in Jesus is the virtue of humility. To be humble does not mean to have a low opinion of yourself. Jesus certainly knew who he was. To be humble is just to think less about yourself, to think of others and what you can do for them rather than thinking about yourself and what others can do for you. Again, contrast Jesus with the shepherds of Israel in the Old Testament uh, who used their position to look out for themselves. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Tim Keller said somewhere else, all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. All life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. What does that mean? If you love a person who has it all together and needs nothing from you, it costs you nothing. But if you love someone who has needs, someone who is in trouble, someone who is emotionally wounded, loving that person will cost you. You take on some of their emotional pain as you bear their burdens by listening and caring. Caring for other people like that can wear you down. It requires sacrifice, and sacrifice is at the heart of real love. And Jesus said, for you, my followers, the way you lead must not be by seeking power and control and positions of honor. Greatness in the kingdom is not measured by who has the highest rank or the highest position of authority. Now, why not? There is a place for rank and positions that require authority. God raises up shepherds and sets them over his people. He puts a desire in some men's hearts to serve as elders, as shepherds in the flock. That implies some level of responsibility and authority in the church. But leadership does not automatically flow from a title or an elected position. Leadership, according to Jesus, is measured by what it does in the lives of followers. It's measured in service. Um, now you can't force compliance, or you can force compliance on the outside. Think about it. If in some relationships, at least, as a parent, as a boss, as a drill sergeant, as an officer of a corporation, you can force compliance on the outside in some situations, but you can't change anyone's heart by using power to make them comply. And Jesus says, I'm calling you to a completely different way of using power. Independence on God who alone can actually change someone's heart, serve others as Jesus served you. Lay down your life for others as Jesus laid down his life for you. Now, I realize there's a difference. When Jesus laid down his life, it had saving value. Uh, you and I in our service don't save anybody. And I also understand that God in his use of power doesn't wait for anybody to, he can't wait for them to choose him. They're dead spiritually. So there's a creative power that goes out from God that creates life in someone so that they can come to faith. You and I don't have the ability to change anybody's heart like that. You may be in a position of authority as a parent, as a leader, that gives you the ability to make people do what you want by using power, by forcing compliance, or by manipulating situations to get your way, but it will not change people's hearts. It won't change people in the church, it won't change your wife, your husband, it won't change your children. If God has put you in a position of authority over someone else, and Jesus is calling you to reflect his character and his style of leadership, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, understand that a heart to serve like this has to come from the work of God's Spirit in your heart. And this is where you need the gospel. Yeah. All of God's commands are good. He commands what is best for us 
but he sets a very high standard. And you're not going to get there by willing yourself to be more humble or by trying harder to be more of a servant. But as you attempt to love people, as you attempt to serve, and you fall short, you are made more aware of how much you need God. You grow in dependence on Christ, who alone can change your heart and the hearts of those around you. But Jesus can't be any clearer than he is here about what he expects from those who serve in his name. Those who are called to lead in the church aren't necessarily looking for greatness. But what Jesus said here certainly applies. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And this specifically applies, I think, to pastors and elders. Uh, Peter, in his first epistle, also says to the elders among you, I exhort you as a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, that is not because you're forced into this role, nobody else would do it, so you had to do it, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. A few months ago, I came across a sermon that was preached at the ordination service of um, a pastor in 1752. John Shaw, the pastor of a Presbyterian church in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, preached at the ordination of another Presbyterian pastor named Moses Taft, who was being ordained and installed as pastor at, of the church at Braintree South Parish. I have no idea where that is. Um, I don't know anything about either of them other than what I read in the sermon. The text that Pastor Shaw used for his sermon was Jeremiah 3.15, where God is speaking and he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And he says in that message, it is a gift to the church when God gives you pastors after God's own heart. A pastor who reflects something of the love and humility of Jesus in the way he leads and serves. Marked by his grace, God has shaped you into a man who reflects Jesus in a lot of ways. I have seen in you for years a humble heart, a willingness to serve and love people, a tenderness in dealing with others. May you be a gift from God to this congregation. And may God continue to work in you that you might reflect the humble servant heart of Jesus in the way you love and serve his bride. That Pastor Shaw said to the candidate for ordination at the end of his sermon, um, he closed the sermon like this, and I'd like to close with this. Dear sir, speaking to the ordinand, dear sir, the time is coming when you and I, in a vastly more solemn and august assembly before God and Christ, must appear and come under examination as to whether we have been pastors according to God's heart or not. The good Lord grant that you and I may obtain mercy and grace to be found faithful, that when the chief shepherd shall appear, we may receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the things that it shows us about Jesus. We thank you for the depths of wisdom and insight that are there. There's more to explore and understand, and yet the command is very clear. Uh, those who are called to service, those who are called to, to lead in some way, and it applies in all kinds of relationships, from parents to marriage to teachers in the classroom, we are called to reflect the humility of Jesus and to serve, not wait to be served. So give us the grace to be like that. And we pray for Mark as you install him, set him apart for ministry here. 
I thank you for him. May he be a blessing to this congregation by having a heart like your heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.